Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with one of my oldest friends, and I use the oldest in one sense, not another, namely John Hartley, and we're on the campus of the Curtin University of Technology in Kent Street, Bentley. In Western John, Australia. Why are you on this campus? Um, that's a good question. I have I finished what I wanted to do at um, Queensland University of Technology, where I was tasked to develop the Creative Industries Faculty. And having spent ten years doing that, five as dean and five as uh, a Federation Fellow doing research in, cre- in the creative economy, I felt that I'd done what I could in that er- area. And I was attracted to come back to Western Australia, where I used to live, because Curtin University is a technological university, but it has a humanities faculty, and it was interested in developing research around cultural studies and technology. So that was what brought me here, to work with some of the people who are doing that kind of thing, in particular Niall Lucy, who's a very well-known cultural theorist in the area of postmodern philosophy. And I thought if you could join the, uh, the kind of urgency of... Um, rethinking categories of knowledge that was represented in postmodernism at its best with new developments in technology and um, uh, do-it-yourself culture uh, using new media affordances, if you could find some way of bringing categories of knowledge and categories of do-it-yourself creativity together, there would be a new research agenda. So that's what I'm here to explore. Wow. And when did you get here? Uh, well, it took me quite a while, quite a while to get here because... Um, uh, there was an illness in the family, so I, I actually, uh, it, you know, the, 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 the <laughs> bringing the plane into land took about right. six months. Right. But I got here uh, later last year. I've been here about a year. Now. All right. So yeah. So it's early days in Very terms much so, yeah. of the agenda. Yeah. Yes, it is. Fit together. And you've got uh, you've got an interesting situation here because Curtin is not a poor university. It's also very large, but it doesn't have a strong research culture, particularly in the humanities. And so part of what I have to do is to what I call nurture the home team, that is try and bring on people who have potential but have not really got opportunity to develop a research career and trajectory for themselves. But also they are quite open to developing uh, uh, new teams, new areas of research, bringing in new people. You know, there is an opportunity to grow quite quickly because if Curtin doesn't do that, it'll start falling behind in these national research metrics competitions that we all have to go through these days. In, in Australia. And one of the legacies often of technologically driven institutions is that humanities is a service sector element that is meant to civilise technocrats rather than actually engage technology. Is yeah. that the heritage here or no? I guess. I mean, the more, more common in Australia, I think, in universities of technology, which were previously, for example, um, colleges of education or, co- or institutes of technology, is not so much the liberal studies tradition, but the teacher training tradition. Mm. And so I think there's quite a few of the very uh, deep uh, humanities um, disciplines represented here that go back to teaching literature to people who are going to end up as teachers. Right. So we do have literary and um, language people. We have uh, uh, commitments across quite a wide range of humanities. But the humanities faculty is a very peculiar beast. I think it must be what was left over when everything else did what it was going to do. So we have um, architecture and built environment in the humanities faculty, as well as education, uh, the media, and uh, um, uh, art and design. So it's an eclectic mix, as it always is in these kinds of inheritance-based universities. 
Uh, and I think uh, they don't really have a kind of um, coherent proposition to make about what humanities research output ought to be. But one area that you can agree on is that um, there is a lot of interest in culture and there's a lot of interest in technology, both among hum humanists and among technologists. So can you bring those two traditions to bear on each other with good effect? And there's intellectual and instrumental answers. One, in, one intellect, one sorry, instrumental answer yeah. is the one that you get from people like Genevieve Bell, who has managed to establish what is effectively an anthropology department inside Intel as a research leader for not what kit can we make that uses our physics and our technology uh, expertise, but what will people do with it, and what kind of demand comes through from users that we would need to respond to. So there are now quite a, quite strong investments in user creativity, user-centred innovation, uh, even among technology firms, and that's clearly an area where there might be some uh, potential. A lot of interest in internet research, for example, which Curtin has some strengths in, and some very interesting problems there too. So moving on to the intellectual side, uh, I personally feel very strongly that the kind of cultural studies, media studies that I grew up with has uh, basically reached its use-by date mm. uh, in terms of its kind of purchase on uh, a world outside the academy. Right, right. And so uh, I do feel that uh, making common cause with the new sciences, not the positivistic and um, controlling science, population controlling sciences of the 1960s, which is where you know, media communication started in social psychology, but the new evolutionary and complexity sciences, systems-based sciences, cybernetics, all that, they do have something to offer to those of us who are interested in how meaning systems work, like language and like culture. So I do think intellectually there's an agenda to, to address, and that's why I call myself Professor of Cultural Science, uh, which is my title here. And you'll find that um, taking technology, culture, putting them together, allows questions to arise don't easily arise in the traditional discipline areas. So, for example, there's a researcher here who's doing very good work, this is Tama Lever, on uh, death on the internet. And, like, what are the ends of identity? What, uh, what uh, conditions obtain in relation to one's identity on the internet? There's obviously the question of the ownership of one's uh, output, and you know, does Facebook own who you are, or do you own who you are? What happens when you die? These are questions which clearly weren't asked when the technology was first developed but which have all kinds of very interesting implications, sort of stuff that Mark Postal was doing for a long time. And, um, you know, I think that's an area where culture and technology are quite clearly one and the same. <laughs> and so, you know, there are questions to ask there that become quite, uh, uh, you know, quite um, central to the development of new work. Uh, there's another uh, researcher here who's doing work on robotics, and she's not interested in how robots work, but on why humans want robots to be humanoid. Like what is this affinity relationship that is uh, set up between humans and robots, and why do we like our robots to have faces, things like that, rather than to be drones going around you know, doing military mm -hmm. things. So um, all I'm saying is that there's new agendas opening up if you take a, uh, an approach to both culture and technology that, that is taking seriously both sides of that equation. And you mentioned that you felt as though, as you, I give you just a brief opportunity to eat your lunch while I've been scoffing mine down, the media studies, cultural studies that you grew up with and helped to define and popularise mm -hmm. and exemplify was ceasing to give you satisfactory 
options and answers. I wonder if you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I don't want to um, get into sort of any kind of critique of it or anything like that, but I just feel that the thing that was dubbed cultural studies when I got going in the 70s and 80s had a, had a forward agenda and a, a sense of discovery and openness to new ways of thinking about how knowledge can be produced and disseminated and who was entitled to take part in that process. So I felt that cultural studies as I understood it, which of course was you know, very heavily inflected by the Birmingham tradition, was emancipatory, was uh, suited to the age of the Polytechnic, which is where I worked at that time, and uh, was able to think about how to bring people who hadn't previously had higher education opportunities into the domain of formal knowledge production, uh, but not necessarily simply to reproduce that apparatus, maybe possibly to transform it into something new. So that was then. This is now. I feel that cultural studies now is much more boundary policed. It's much more, uh, what should I say, it's a kind of gestural politics which, uh, uh, in which the declaration of a position of opposition is more important than the analysis of, uh, of um, should we say, uncertain realities. Uh, and so uh, I just felt as though, I, not, for, not for other people, but for me, uh, the... the, the uh, continuing reproduction of what it was that we knew how to do so easily when we were doing ideology analysis. Uh, just ran out of steam. Ran out of steam. Yeah. And uh, partly because I think technology actually does make a difference. And when you, you know, when you start, when you, let me just do this through TV studies. When you start doing TV studies, uh, it's incredibly hard to derive expertise that belongs to disciplinary knowledge. Because everybody watches TV, so what's expert about it? And in any case, if you're going to have expertise, it doesn't come from studying television. It comes from being a psychologist or being an economist or being some other kind of uh, disciplinary knowledge. You know, so television found it very hard to establish itself as a disciplinary domain, simply because uh, uh, it appeared to be commonplace and, and everyday and... You know, there wasn't an expertise. Everybody had the knowledge. Everybody had the knowledge, yeah. yes. So what was important? Like a London camping. And not only, that, yes, <laughs> not only that, but a lot of those people were low-lifes or women or, you know, other unfavoured groups. So having knowledge and, expert, and expertise in television in the, in the 60s and 70s was a pretty hard act, you know. Out of that, I think, developed rather over-reliance on theory as being, well, I've got theory, so I'm able to speak mm, from that perspective. Mm, you know. mm, and uh, I just think... The era of uh, upswell of uh, user-created content, for example, reviewing television programs or putting up fan sites or mm. developing relationships with stars in different ways, uh, both critical and the other way, uh, means that television studies is now out there in popular culture, not just television consumption. Mm. And we have a hard time simply competing with television studies as a popular practice because a lot of it's better than what we do. You know, They know more about uh, you know, soap opera X than I do. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I do think that uh, you need something other than a theoretical stance or a political program yeah. to understand how culture is developing when the tools for developing such stances are so widely distributed. There's got to be something other than that that we can start putting our minds to. And would that apply to something not as damned or object-specific as television? Um, well, I, I, yes, I, I don't think of myself as a TV scholar anymore, uh, partly because some very good ones doing the work, particularly in America, who aren't me. 
So um, I, I guess I'd just immediately start turning towards both new media practices on the one hand, so do it yourself, uh, uh, um, creative production as it were, creative productivity in various new media and social network formats, but also different kinds of practices. And um, one that uh, comes to mind is something that you couldn't do in the past was curate existing materials and create new knowledge out of that practice. As an amateur, that was done by what's now called the glam sector, you know, galleries, libraries, uh, archives and museums. They were professional curators. They collected material, named it and, and displayed it according to some paradigm of knowledge. Well, people can do that for themselves now. And that's not... That's not simply about a medium, either television or the internet. It's about how people organise knowledge in public contexts for certain purposes. And it's it's huge, the, the amount of you know informal curation and archiving and uh, reproduction of new yeah. kinds of knowledge is, is enormous. It's worthy of study in itself. You know, it's a cultural practice, in other words, that wasn't there when we started. Well, it was there, but not in that way. Or not um, that much. There, it was hard to do with live footage Quite. and it was hard to distribute yes. but the interest in doing it was probably there yeah no i, I wouldn't just, i wouldn't disagree with that in the way people used to keep scrapbooks of newspaper cuttings and so on shows that the practice is very embedded don't doubt it at all but now you can do it much more sophisticatedly there are tutorials all over uh, facebook uh, not facebook uh, youtube to tell you how to do various things uh, the, the actual image qualities are so much better now with yeah. digital cameras and all that sort of stuff. So it's just, it is a step change in how uh, knowledge curating practices using multimedia inputs can be organised socially rather than through universities and uh, institutions. So what's the point of doing this in universities? Must be the next question. Well, because it's the next question. Yeah. I think it's a question that hasn't been properly answered, partly by the practitioners and partly by the managers of the university systems. You know, I don't think they know what to do with uh, the the, uh, the disciplines that they've inherited, and I don't just include my own in that context. So, uh, if universities are going to survive, the dispersal of their business model to players outside of the university sector, which is clearly already happening, uh, uh, and you might begin to think that actually broadcasters can play a role in developing new models of universities. You know, the University of the BBC would be a very interesting model if only they would dare to suggest such a thing, which of course they don't at the moment. But nevertheless, I'm just saying there are other players out there who can model what universities do rather well. Well, they have their college well. of journalism. They do indeed. That they is do indeed. Example. That's right. That is an example. And then there's also the MOOCs movement where we're trying to democratise knowledge distribution, if not production, <coughs> with certain caveats about branding and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, so, you know, what I'm saying is that universities have now got competition just as mass communication publishers have competition, just as broadcast model television has competition. There's different ways of doing it now. And we're now told by people like Kevin Spacey that we're in a golden age of television. But most of the television that comprises that golden age doesn't come from network TV, it comes from cable TV or from specialist providers like um, you know, uh, box office and whatnot. So I'm just saying that the ground on which universities play has shifted just as much as the object of study has shifted. And so how knowledge is organised, who does the organising, where expertise lies and how it's deployed are mm. open questions. Mm. Mm. What does that imply, say, for an undergraduate curriculum? 
question. Um, oh gosh. Um, well, I'll give you. you know, a... I'm sending my nipper into your delicate hands. <laughs> what is my nipper going to study? Yeah. The first thing is uh, nothing. What goes on here matters. You can do it at home. Well, that's what they were saying in the 1960s, and we managed to get over that one, didn't we? Um, so, you know, I'm used to that one, don't you worry. Uh, and I was very interested when I first went to QUT in um, the uh, rather... They, they may have had white shoes, but they had rather hard noses. Uh, you know, the, the entrepreneurial types who, who uh, were quite prolific in Queensland. Anyway, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the rationale for having a creative industries faculty uh, at a university of technology took some persuading because those people were much more used to instrumental forms of education, whether it's engineering or finance or an MBA or something of that sort. They couldn't see what a creative industries education was for, but their children could. And so many of these rather successful folk had children who were interested in some kind of expressive or performance or creative art combined with entrepreneurial activity. And that, I think, is something that hasn't been on the agenda um, Successful hasn't been put on the agenda successfully. How do you combine artistic talent, critical creativity, and entrepreneurial you know, get up and go, whatever you call it, um, uh, into something that could make an ed educational package? I don't think it's been properly done, but I think it's there as, a, as an opportunity for universities to work on. And in terms of the conventions of how disciplines recreate themselves. What does that imply for, say, in a United States system, doing a master's degree for a couple of years, doing a PhD of coursework for a couple of years, and then researching and writing your dissertation? I mean, yeah, I think there's challenges there. Um, in the creative disciplines, your best students leave as soon as they can, possibly even before graduating, to get work in the fashion industry or the arts industry or wherever is appropriate. Very few of them go on to do PhDs until they finish being practitioners of some sort. Then they may come back, uh, particularly dancers, for example, whose knees give out after 10 years, that kind of thing. But, um, so, yes, so, but, um, it is hard to say to those people, well, actually, if you're really good at what you're doing, you should do a PhD in it. You know, it's, it's, not the same, it's not the same environment. However, there are people who, are, who do want to take PhDs, particularly in media, who are interested in how new media work and what new developments are coming through that need to be taken account of. And some of those, some of my graduates, my PhD graduates, have gone on to jobs in industry where they mm -hmm. can't even admit they've got a PhD. You know, no. it's just, it they won't get the job. You don't, well, it just doesn't work in their environment. It doesn't ring anybody's bell, you know. So I think there is a problem uh, about how you reproduce the knowledge system at a university level. I think it's got to be a dialogue between university and its other, uh, rather than simply, well, this is how we train people, and it takes this long, costs this much, is this a specialist, and until you've understood the rhetoric and the, and the methodology, you're not really one of us. I think all that's out the window. You've got to let people who've done good practitioner degrees or good master's degrees come back in and become magisters of teaching, of research, as well as specialists from day one. What does that mean if we're thinking about the avowedly elite institutions, so not the ones you've been referring to, not the former polytechnics in Britain or the Institutes of sure. Technology here, but places where you know, Oxbridge being a great example, 
you can do your medieval French undergrad degree and you'll be offered a well-paid job in the City of London as a financial analyst without knowing how to spell finance or analysis, <laughs> let alone take such things immediately. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I am not a, a partisan of that particular model of education, uh, so I'm, I'm not going to try and defend it at all. On the contrary, I've spent quite a long time trying to not subvert it, but circumnavigate it, if that's the right word. Um, because I think a lot of people are sent to Oxford because of its brand name, not because of its content. And it, it is interesting, isn't it, that of the university, what, 200 of the universities in Britain, there are about two that don't do media studies. One of them is Oxford, the other is Cambridge. So, uh, although they do do internet studies uh, with a private endowment into the Oxford Internet Institute. So there is still a prejudice against this kind of work being done in certain organizations of that kind. However, if you go to the United States and you want to find my work, you'll find it in grad schools. And so the idea that newcomers to a knowledge domain are interested across disciplines and in informal ways of producing knowledge, I think is absolutely real. I think it may be not what the system thinks it's doing, but it may be what its consumers think they're doing. And so you do get cross-fertilization uh, of ideas from the outside to the inside, from one discipline to another, and from different ways of doing work or methodology to another, by having people working at the boundaries of their own disciplinary knowledge. And grad schools are quite good at that kind of work. Mm. You know, they do. They are interested in. Uh, you know, if you if you're if you're looking at um, uh, um, you know, problem X, you shouldn't just do it from your own discipline. You should look at it from uh, a, a, as wide array as possible and go and read up uh, uh, what's happening in those disciplines. But also engage with people who are using those kinds of. Uh, uh, of the activities that you're interested in studying and people who are producing it. So you do get this amalgamation of, um, or consilience, let's call it that, of different disciplinary knowledges and different partners in knowledge coming together. And frankly, I think that's the way of the future. Now, you mentioned earlier, John, that some of your learning experience of this comes from having been a dean. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you a question about that. We were just chatting to somebody now retired, who got into trouble in a very, very, very senior university position because they wanted to continue to do research and teaching. And I've worked with somebody very prominent in our field who had the same problem, kept getting grants, kept teaching PhD students and was a pro-vice-chancellor. Yeah. Sorry, not allowed. Yeah. Now, by contrast with that, there's a kind of incipient Maoism that says, back to the fields with you, Sonny Jim, or else. <laughs> But I wonder about how far one can go in university administration whilst maintaining the skill, the aptitude and the desire to undertake research and how you found it working as an executive dean but also endeavouring to contribute to these new forms of knowledge. Because a lot of these people say to you quite frankly, actually I gave up and I couldn't do it anymore because I was too busy and I was invested in this thing. And a guy I know quite well uh, became a dean at 32 and was an executive vice chancellor, one of these vaguely fancy terms, at 50. And at 60, didn't get the top job and was told he was never going to. Yes. So he decided he would go back and be a psychologist. He went back and he discovered he didn't know what a psychologist was or what they did. Mm. He hadn't been one mm. since he'd been made department chair at 26. Mm -hmm. mm. Mm. <laughs> Name no names, please. But, um, okay, uh, I can in fact address that question. Um, it is partly to do with coming out of what in Britain used to be called the polytechnic sector, 
uh, and here is the University of Technology sector, and that is that um, there is no research tradition in those places. But if you're going to produce some new way of doing uh, intellectual work of any kind, whether it's practically oriented or theoretically oriented or any other kind of orientation, you do need a research reputation. So I was interested in institution shaping and in developing a research capability for these new disciplines or non-disciplines or interdisciplines as much as I was interested in producing the research itself, you know. So I came to uh, my job at QUT, but I had previously done the same thing at Cardiff uh, as the founding head of the School of Journalism and Media there, um, wanting to, to say uh, non-canonical knowledge systems can still be built up as preeminent research areas. And if you, if you have to play by rules that are set by others, whether they're scientists or bureaucrats, the only way to... Uh, to um, the only way to deal practically with those kinds of rules is to be good at them. And so <laughs> uh, uh, that was the motivation, to be, a, to be involved in institution shaping. Now I'm, say, I'm putting it that way because what I actually want to do is say that that's where cultural studies started. The, you know, the, the kind of mythical founder of cultural studies was Richard Hoggart. Where did he spend most of his career? As adult education. Adult education in UNESCO in Paris or as warden of uh, Goldsmiths College in London where he was developing institutional capabilities in new knowledge areas yeah. and for technological purposes as much as doing intellectual work, which he continues to do throughout his career as well, partly because he was a reviewer and a critic rather than a kind of uh, numerical-based researcher. So I was keen to uh, explore that kind of capability. You know, what can one do to shape institutions towards research preeminence, given the new rules that apply? And so that, as a dean, I continue to work, although mostly on commentary type uh, uh, publication rather than big deal stuff. But I did win a, a big ARC research grant to explore oh, the Australian research grant. Sorry, a, a research grant to explore the creative industries in um, China. So internationalising the creative industries idea, and obviously worked with a team. I could, you can't do it as a dean; you have to work with others. But nevertheless, I kept my hand in, if I can put it that way, yeah. with both publication and research. And then at the end of my deanship, I applied for, not expecting to win, uh, the top uh, Australian research fellowship, which is called a federation fellowship, and I won one. In fact, I won the only one that QUT was ever awarded. So it was easy for me, because I was still interested in the disciplinary knowledge and in the development of my, uh, my particular field, it was easy for me to move from dean to federation fellow. But, this is the point of your question, I think, it was impossible to move back again. After the five years of the Federation Fellowship, oh, the university yeah. had no use for me as a Deputy Vice-Chancellor or as whatever else one would have become over on the dark side, you know? Yeah. And so I, I, uh, I researched my way out of a career as a, as so a university. So you're sort of the opposite of I the am, yes. trajectory yes. that I'm yes, describing. I am indeed. Yeah. And I think... Um, you know, opportunities occasionally come up to look at an executive position, but I'm not interested enough in the numbers as such simply to wish a university well as a general organism. Yeah. I'm interested in, you know, how does my area prosper and what can I do about that? Uh, and so I don't really want to move very far away from my field. Yeah. And so yeah. therefore I'm confined to it. Yeah. Yeah. When you say my field and what my area to prosper, You've, you've used a few terms today, I cultural have. studies, cultural science, television studies. Yep. You've mentioned new media, you've mentioned archiving, yep. you've mentioned criticism, 
review and so on. I, I wonder if you could give me that as a sentence with more conventional syntax. Gosh. <laughs> explain yourself, sir. Yeah, explain yourself, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, interesting. Um, I will just say it, uh, it's not an equivocation. It's an attempt to answer the question, but there's two ways of answering that question. One is to reduce the question to an algorithm and say, I model my career this wise, or my discipline this wise. You know, culture is the study of X. Or I can do it as humanities tend to do it, illustratively, historically, mm -hmm. and um, by reference to uh, facts on the ground, which we used to call texts. So um, my career has, has followed disciplinary evolution as it has occurred. I've never had two jobs in succession at the same time from 1970-something onwards. And so I do do media studies, cultural studies, communication studies. I do do journalism studies. Uh, I also do what I call cultural science, but then cultural science doesn't exist, so you know it's not something where I'm calling a population into being or anything like that. Um, so my 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 practice is descriptive and humanistic, uh, but what I would like to achieve by the end of it all is a reformulation of what it is to study culture in. Uh, the context of new discoveries in the evolutionary and complexity sciences and in the context of global technological capitalism. What is culture? Right, right. And when it comes to setting an agenda, you mentioned the word agenda earlier, I'm interested in how you go about that. Some people go about establishing a research agenda based on where are the gaps in formal knowledge as described in literature reviews sure. and so on. Yeah. Some people do it in terms of the government or a corporation say they want knowledge about X. We know a bit about X minus Y. Mm. We could fill the gap. They're going to give money. This is an opportunity. And we can use the money to do other things that interest us more anyway. Yes. Some people go to social movements and ask, or listen, or participate, find out what matters to them and how they could be university knowledge to aid them. There are all kinds of different ways in which the agendas are set. And some people just sit and think, I'd like to know about this because it's interesting. You know? mm -hmm. And I'm interested in A, how you go about setting an agenda, but B, what your advice would be to others to set agendas. Well, um, oh dear. I don't think there's a right answer to that one, but I do think setting an agenda is partly an institutional business. It's not a personal agenda. Mm -hmm. And so if you're working in a, in a university, sooner or later you need to ask, well, what, it is, what is it that a university can do mm -hmm. as opposed to what can I do? Uh, otherwise, you might not need to work in a university. You might be able to yeah. do something else, especially these days. You know, So a lot of our younger uh, research students might go off and work for advocacy organizations or they might go off and work somewhere else. So I think that's a question about what are universities for, and setting an agenda for the transformation of universities towards challenges that they face from Google and Wikipedia and Facebook and all those new social media, about which we do understand something. Well, that is part of setting an agenda. What is the institution that I work for? for? The other part is, um, well, I came into cultural studies because uh, I felt very strongly that the traditional education that I received had no room for the likes of me. You know, I come from a non-traditional family. I had nobody in my family had ever been to university. Uh, in those days, most of the markers were based on class rather than other things. Since then, it's been 
gender and uh, multiculturalism and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, there there is you know there is a, an insider and an outsider in relation mm. to knowledge production, and I am very strongly motivated to have uh, a, a, a more inclusive world of knowledge for those who want to be involved in it. And the longer I go on in the business, the more I think that you know the the the, the answer to every question in the world is education for girls you know it's like if you could get if you could get more reach of the knowledge domain into the population for whatever purposes are theirs rather than yours then uh, that's a worthwhile enterprise and it still is a worthwhile enterprise even after 150 200 years of attempting to do it in certainly the british context where you know liberals like lord broom started the university of london for those kinds of emancipatory reasons how do you develop uh, thoughtful, secular, responsible citizenship um, who can shift for themselves in a world of dynamism, change, technology and um, you know, global forces of various kinds. So that's an agenda that has to do with a very kind of, you know, it's a big picture sort of look. So I don't know where you would apply it. When you're sitting occasion in an armchair to, or occasion to occasion, group. well, yeah. not yes, but the thing is, yeah. you can choose. It's not there's yeah. not one answer to it. It's yeah. like you can find ways of doing it that belong to your niche, uh, but you're still, nevertheless, trying to do something worthwhile according to a, a, a bigger agenda. You know. One of the so I don't do world challenges based on technological problem solution. I do. Um, uh, I, I'm drawn to. Um, how to find voices for people who have currently or previously been ignored or traduced. Mm. One of the things that it seems to me some systems for preparing people for university research work inculcate is a much more instrumental form that is about building one's own career. Yeah. I'm very struck by the infantilization that is instantiated in Britain through and the same in Australia, far as I can tell, the notion of early career researcher, where basically you're told, you're 35, you've got a PhD, uh, here is your nappy, here is your diaper, we've been taking it on and off you for a while, we're now going to put it in more parts of your body even than we did before. And you must do this and you must do that. And I'm kind of horrified by it, even as I'm told by all those who embrace the diaper, that it is good for them and they really like it. Well, I sympathise with you. And I do think um, the, the kind of it's not so much infantilization, but the stretching of a career. So that you're not really allowed to know anything until you're a postgraduate. And uh, you know the idea of learning stuff at school and then uh, then doing a disciplinary area of knowledge at university is almost completely out of the window these days. So universities are now doing what schools used to do, and postgraduate work is doing what graduate, uh, what undergraduate work is doing, mm. so on, so on. Now. Uh, what you call ECRs, early career researchers, are doing what you might have expected a PhD student to do yeah. some time ago. So there is that kind of creep, I can see it. But uh, uh, I'm on the uh, a thing called the ARC College, which is the group that decides who gets grants in the ARC, the Australian Research Council, annual round of, uh, of uh, research awards. And one of those is a thing called DECRA, which is the Discovery for Early Career Researchers Award, that's what it is, DECRA. And um, that goes to people who are within five years of their PhD graduation. Now, wh what I want to say to you is that the best work that I've seen is exclusively in that group. 
and not among the open competition of discovery projects from very senior people who by and large do what they do and they want to do it again, you know. So I think the, the world of exploration, openness to new challenges and uh, simple energy for uh, challenging questions is coming from early career researchers, whatever their name, uh, or for people who are new to the field, and I, I think that that is worth encouraging. So I agree with you about the, the potential for infantilization, but I still think people can make something of it and do something with it. Yeah, sure. I think it might be despite rather than <laughs> maybe, because maybe, of, maybe. I yes, say, yeah, no, because I, I think what you identify is a tendency that's probably always been there, namely probably. that the dynamism comes from the new, yes, yes, from the young. It's renewal from below. That's yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. And if the system is trying to reward that, well, I'm not going to blame it. No, no, but no, if no, it I... then, in the process, means that most of the people involved in that process are infantilised, well, that's an issue that certainly needs work. That's one of the things that worries me, that people talk a lot, in my presence, about where to publish based on how it will affect, assist their career, mm. rather than, I've got ideas, I want them to get out, you know, and totally that, agree. that troubles me and I don't understand it. Well, I have to tell you, my career has suffered from that too. Um, I was denied my first attempt at promotion at a university where we both worked on the grounds that my books were published by a commercial publisher and um, the other candidate's books were published by Oxford University Press. Mine sold 80,000, his sold 300. I didn't get promoted, he did. So uh, the idea that um, the production of knowledge has anything to do with its dissemination yeah. is rather foreign to career stretching, you know, and yeah. uh, I just think that's a problem, yeah. it's just yeah. a problem. Yeah. I don't buy into it at all. I'd rather, I'd rather write, a, write an airport bestseller, you yeah. know, I mean, I think that's an enviable skill, sure. which I don't have. Yeah. <laughs> um, or not yet, anyway, uh, we'll see. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just think the idea that one produces knowledge for one's peers is ridiculous. I, yeah. think, I think it's got to be an open system, open to challenge, open to people who are not experts. And if you can't explain what you're doing to your hairdresser, don't get another hairdresser, you know, think, think more clearly about what it is that you're doing. Well, that's the other thing, I suppose, isn't it? Different media and different publics for expressing yourself. And I was at a meeting of journal editors a few years ago, most of whom were editors of science journals. Uh, things like I, as in EYE, and Cell, great <laughs> titles, you know, where they are able to just use single words in their titles. And that doesn't mean they're an avant-garde art magazine. It means they're doing proper knowledge. And they were talking about the fact that only see, this may not be true anymore, but in those days in the United States, this I guess is, let's say, six years ago, only senior, very established science scientists felt able to publish in open access online journals. And junior people were terrified mm. and continued to feel they had to publish in Cell and mm. I. <laughs> and nothing could be public access. Yes. Anything online is yeah. dubious. Yes, I agree. Uh, it's the case. I mean, I am the editor. In fact, I've been the only editor of a journal called the International Journal of Social Studies, which appears to have become not what it was. I think once Hugh made a distinction between journals of tendency and journals of profession, profession it has moved from one to the other over its 17-year period. And now it is that kind of thing. People really want to be published, and they want to be published now because it matters for some metric counting yeah. system. And you think, well, yeah, but have you got a good article? You've got to say. <laughs> and so I do think there's definitely a professionalisation problem. Yeah. But on the other hand, professionalisation is another way of talking about, you know, competition for the best ideas. And so some part of it is of value. <coughs> the idea that one should make choices for, 
one's own career without taking any risks to open up new fields of knowledge, uh, it does strike me as a weakness among the people who are doing it. You know, if, if all that you want to do is just be in the best journals and you know work at the only universities that count, even when they're doing rubbish work, which does occur, you see it in America. You see some of the best grad students, they have to go to this university to work with this supervisor and then get a, their first tenure track job at this other university. You know, I know those people. And I think, well, yeah, but you'll end up just talking the same as everybody else, and knowledge hasn't moved forward. Whereas somebody who throws it all over and starts afresh with some new idea may end up much more influential. Yeah. So I'd take the risk myself. Yeah. But that's just what I did. <laughs> Look where I am now. <laughs> A triumph. <laughs> Sitting under some hardy non-perennials. Yes, that's right. A London plane tree, which I think is... Um, interesting in Western Australia, which has you know, one of the most amazing, unique fauna and flora in the world, that we have to import models of um, civic open space from London. But there we are. Now, in terms of this question of knowledge and how it gets legitimized, one of the things that people often level at new areas, whether they be sociology in the 60s in Britain or Media studies today in Britain, yep. not so new, but yep. seen as being, being so, is that the objects of study are unworthy and the methods of doing so non existent. This is particularly leveled at media studies and cultural studies. That a core element of any discipline is that there's a set of operational procedures that people go through and that is how they establish the truth in addition to the capacity of what they unfurl to correspond to observable reality there are also certain maneuvers that they go through each time that others can then retread in order to establish their veracity and that can get changed very quickly and easily once people agree in the college of cardinals that it is time so to do yep um well discuss <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> yes um that there is no doubt that that kind of attack is leveled at media studies uh, and I, I, I think I've got two different things to say about it. One is that um, I don't think you can simply produce media studies from a methodology that is imposed on it from the outside. I think it has to develop its own uh, ways of doing things and you know, interestingly it emerged during a period of intellectual ferment where the legitimacy of all knowledge was under question. So there, there, there's a bit of a leftover of that kind of ferment still attaching mm -hmm. to it, you know, that it doesn't believe in truth, which isn't the case, I don't think, but which is one of those things that people like to throw at it. You know, if you don't believe in uh, realism as, uh, as uh, declared by Karl Popper, then of course you don't believe in anything, and therefore anything goes and everything you do is fiction. You know, it's like too, too easily reduced to its absurdities or to its opposites. And also, as with many things in the media, uh, media studies is always judged by its worst exponents, not by its best ones. And uh, uh, and quite a lot of its best ones don't profess media studies. They go off to other uh, disciplines to uh, return their own research. You know, it's a big problem in Britain where the uh, research uh, assessment panels are made up of people who don't do media studies. They do sociology or something else. Um, so there's that. Then. If you were simply to say, well, I have a methodology, for example, one derived from social sciences, uh, for example, let's say psychology, and this is how I will study uh, the media, then what you will produce is knowledge about behavior, 
You will not produce knowledge about systems, you won't produce knowledge about content, you won't produce knowledge about to use your creativity. That agenda has to come from outside. And so I don't think that simply applying a disciplinary um, armamentarium uh, to a given uh, emergent problem yeah. helps you to identify what that problem is. No, because it, it's, its fealty is to its own systems of knowledge yes. rather than to the object that overtly And a lot of animation. published uh, social science in the big communications yeah. journals of the US are demonstrating a method, not showing us something new about the world. So I do think there's a problem with, you know, simply saying, oh, yes, a discipline is constituted in its method. Well, too bad, because that was true in the 19th century. It's not true anymore. We have to think differently. But we don't have to go to the opposite extreme and be like T.S. Eliot, you know, the only method is to be very intelligent. We don't have to do that. We have to say, yes, you need a, an argued, coherent, uh, and, uh, and uh, what shall I say, contestable approach to the way that you produce knowledge. Uh, but it, it, can it can be what people call criticism. I mean, I don't use that term, but people do, and they think that critical production of knowledge is defensible and there's ways of doing it. Uh, deep textual analysis is defensible. I wish there were much more of it about. I mean, a lot of the sociological and social science approaches to media have taken over textual analysis and do it very, very badly. You know, they're not very good at it. So I think something is lost if you say, well, we've got to do it this way and not that way. And something that is over-systematic misses the object itself because the object itself is in such transformation. So I think you, you do have to be quite nifty and agile with method, uh, but very much not, um, what shall I say, uh, scornful of it, you know. Uh, and so maybe what we're going through is a period of transition. Maybe this is the warring period between two dynasties, you know, and uh, we will eventually emerge into a new way of studying large-scale cultural systems uh, that uh, are themselves dynamic and dependent upon each other and dependent upon circumstances in order to maintain any kind of stability. Um, you know, we'll, we'll learn how to study them somehow systematically, but we haven't done it yet. So, when you seek validation of the work you're doing, who is or what is your implied readership or audience oh, to say, this, this, is, uh, this adequates to the object or subject and this doesn't? Yeah, yeah, good question. Now, I'm writing a book with an evolutionary economist, so cultural theory meets evolutionary economics. Couldn't be more different. Uh, each of them thought that the, others, the other was the domain of dragons at some point, you know what I mean? We're not, we're not natural bedfellows. So a great deal of new information is emerging simply from trying to get our disciplinary discourses to understand each other and to learn what the hell we're on about when one is organised around economics as a discipline and the other is organised around what we've been discussing. Uh, and that dialogue is itself constitutive of new ways of doing things, I think. Uh, so who is the interlocutor of that? I don't know. I think it might be people in grad school, <laughs> um, or it might be early career researchers. I don't think it is teachable as a program, and I don't think it is uh, aimed at my existing peer group, who are not in the least bit interested in what I do, and in fact denounce it before I've done it. So I'm now part of a, you know, a, 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 a way of doing cultural studies that is regarded as dis disreputable in journals like cultural studies, uh, which have gone to the trouble of uh, tearing it to pieces um, you know, without consultation, as it were. So I know that there's no interest among the existing peer group for, for what I do, but I do think we're on to something. And I think the, the, the combination of 
disciplines that are, that are very different towards problems that are emergent in circumstances where education itself is transforming. You know, there's room for experimentation and that's what we're doing. Now, people who are interested in the experiment will go with it, people who are not won't. And I don't have a, a, a sense in advance that I know, you know, whether there'll be eight of one and 20,000 of the other or sure. which way around it is. Sure. <clears throat> and there's a question here, and this is my, my last question, um, actually, about collaboration. And I wondered if you could talk to us a bit about that, because it's such a thorny one. It's idealised in some forms of cultural studies, but rarely undertaken. I agree with that. Uh, may I say that uh, I, have, I do have quite a long history of collaboration, partly through the work that I was talking about before as a dean and as a, uh, a federation fellow, where building big research teams in the creative industries space was regarded as a very good thing to do, partly to help us win more funding and all that kind of thing, but also to put things on the agenda that you simply can't do at smaller scale. So I think having a large-scale, big research centre where we had 70 PhDs, 30 employed researchers, uh, 20 uh, chief investigators, obviously across many different uh, agendas and personalities and all the rest of it, was nevertheless a really good experiment and I'm very glad I've been involved in it because we've been able to think about things that weren't on the agenda when we started, including the work that I'm doing now. It just couldn't have been done without that. So I think scale helps and uh, I recommend it. I think working in teams, talking to people who you don't like, uh, uh, working in a, in a paradigm where what's obvious is not obvious at all, you know, where you can't take anything for granted, uh, I think is quite, uh, as it were, bracing, as they used mm. to say. Bracing. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, because uh, so often you do read stuff which, in which all the questions that might have been interesting are kind of assumed at the outset, and then, you know, an existing ideological position is demonstrated to the complete satisfaction of all concerned. And where have you got to? Nowhere. So I think, uh, I think um, you are more likely to spark off new things with difference than you are with sameness. And I think a big research centre, working research teams, working with people who don't share your expectations is the way to do that. Mm. Mm. And perhaps, just as a follow-up, though, I said it was the last question, it's the last field Thought. that I guess I wanted to yeah. touch on. You mentioned things like almost incommensurate forms of knowledge and sometimes incommensurate personalities. Sure. And without wanting to get, in, get into details about either of those, that's also something you must have encountered as an administrator, as a manager, as yeah. an executive dean. And both in terms of the personalities question and commensurate forms of knowledge question. And I'm wondering, not much on the personality side, but the other side, how you can have productive discussions when people really see the world very, very different. Mm -hmm. um, to give one, one imaginary example, somebody who thinks audiences make texts mm. versus somebody who thinks text make audiences. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, uh, we've been wor worrying at that one for a long time, <laughs> yes, haven't I know. we? <laughs> it's really come up with it. It's not terribly original, but you know what I mean at least, right? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, and I don't think it's resolved at all, of course. Uh, uh, I, I, to be honest, what I actually think about that question is that you need to get people who are even further removed from each other 
people who haven't got a clue what an audience or a text yeah, is, right, talk right. to them. Yeah. And, uh, and that might be the way to open up yeah. the questions on both sides to a slightly yeah. different form of analysis. Yeah. And so this is what I'm trying to say, that if you, if you think interdisciplinary is, oh, I'm a production specialist, but you're a reception specialist, and therefore we can yeah. never speak to each other, which is true, that goes on a lot. I don't think you've gone far enough. I, I want to talk yeah. to people who are doing evolutionary theory and who don't know anything about culture because they should know something about culture. And I think culture has a lot to, uh, 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 to um, what should I say, to contribute to development of uh, those uh, theories right. over there. So this is how you avoid the narcissism of small differences. Is that what this called? Yes. Well, I try and avoid it, that's for sure. But, but I, I, it's not so much narcissism, it may be that, but it's more to do with uh, what's at stake. You know, the stakes get progressively lower the closer you are to each other. And uh, I'm, I'm not setting it up as something everybody should do, but I found that I had a lot to discuss with an evolutionary economist that, was, that spoke directly to things that I was interested in. And I found that he'd read the same things that I'd been reading too, outside of the discipline, and was aware of intellectual movements around the world and technological movements around the world that I was interested in. And we formed, you know, uh, we formed a, 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 a dialogic pair, not out of a desire to, to um, uh, reduce our differences, but to explore them, to find out what, what it was that kept us apart and why uh, that was regarded as some kind of political suicide on both sides, you know, to talk to the other. And I, I was very interested, I'll give you an example of, of how that might work at a, at a larger scale than just me. Uh, I was amazed to discover that, um, uh, dear, what's the, the, the um, Adbusters, the, the journal Adbusters, came out with an issue last, last year or the year before, entirely devoted to evolutionary economics as a revolutionary form of knowledge for business students to challenge their, their economics and business professors with in order to think up new ways of knowledge for um, business schools. So the idea that evolutionary economics can be right in the heart of the beast but at the same time challenging its preconceptions is not just my idea, that, that was Adbuster's idea, and I don't know whether it was right or wrong, but you know, the, the point is that the, all fields are in ferment, economics is in ferment, you know, the humanities are in ferment. Are we thinking about the same, is, you know, is there something going on across those different ferments that, are, that we can understand as being a common issue? Well, yes, I think is the answer. And uh, you get people like E.O. Wilson saying there should be conciliance between the natural sciences and the uh, creative uh, arts. And he thinks that's the future of, you know, kind of knowledge dialogue in, in the next century. And I think, well, you know, let's give it a go. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. Greatly appreciated. And I hope that when your next project bears fruit in the form of this book, you'll come back into the pod and talk to us about it. <laughs> I'd be glad to. Thank you.